LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Thomas Lombardo, who joins us to discuss his book, Science Fiction, The Evolutionary Mythology of the Future. Science fiction is the most visible and influential contemporary form of futurist thinking and imagination in the modern world. Similar in many ways to the great myths of the past, science fiction is so popular because, in dramatic narrative form, it speaks to the whole person. Intellect, imagination, emotion, human values and the senses, providing fantastical and visionary stories that engage and enlighten us, expanding our consciousness and inspiring our ongoing future evolution. Beginning with this first volume in a four-volume series, science fiction, the evolutionary mythology of the future, describes the historical development of science fiction from its ancient mythological origins up through contemporary times, explaining how science fiction has emerged as our modern mythology and how it has both reflected and guided the evolution of human consciousness, society, and scientific technological imagination and creation. Hello and welcome, Tom, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yes, hello, Greg. It's uh, great to be here. Tom, today we're going to be talking about your latest book. It's entitled Science Fiction, the Evolutionary Mythology of the Future. Before we jump into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Uh, yes, uh, my uh, graduate background is in psychology and philosophy. Uh, taught psychology and philosophy for a couple of decades, worked in mental health too. Got interested in teaching uh, the uh, future back in the 1990s and uh, became very active writing and attending various conferences on the future over the last 20, 25 years and have written a number of books on the future and future consciousness. Uh, all of my life, I've had a fascination uh, with science fiction, and as I got more uh, uh, into the uh, study of the future, I began to delve further and further into science fiction and began to teach it and also began to write about it. So uh, we're up to date now uh, with, uh, at this point in time, I'm working on a, uh, a four-volume series, uh, an in-depth history of uh, science fiction. Okay, well, um, as you mentioned, you've been uh, had a lifelong interest in science fiction. I have as well. Well, certainly from age, I don't know, five or six, whenever I started to to pick up books on my own, just those that were handed to me. The, the earliest point I can trace uh, of a fascination with this would probably be the British TV series Doctor Who. What was it for you? Well, um, uh, it was in part uh, the movies uh, in the 1950s growing up. I uh, was uh, fascinated, mesmerized, excited by going to watch 
the War of the Worlds, the Time Machine, uh, Forbidden Planet, uh, When Worlds Collide, all of the uh, classic uh, science fiction movies of the 1950s. Toward the end of the 1950s, as I uh, got a bit older, I began to uh, read some uh, science fiction stories and novels. Uh, my recollection is that uh, the first science fiction novel I ever read was um, uh, Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. Uh, but I know that soon thereafter, I read uh, The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells and The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Uh, so those were the earliest influences, except for the fact that I also decided that I thought I could write science fiction. So as a young kid, and I mean like really young, six to seven years old, I actually tried to write a few science fiction stories. So let's cut to a quick overview of the book. Um, as mentioned, the, the subtitle is The Evolutionary Mythology of the Future. Perhaps you could just give listeners a brief outline of what you mean by that, because really you're considering what role science fiction plays in wider society as opposed to just being literature, just being art, whatever it happens to be, and actually it's had a long struggle to be accepted as either or both of those things. But for not least, we can say of how many facts in the world, uh, how many objects in the world, how many technologies, conventions actually started as fiction, not just science fiction, but many of them did. Yes, yes. Um, science fiction um, has had a, a big uh, impact on uh, contemporary or modern society the last couple hundred years. Uh, but I trace the history of science fiction back to uh, ancient myth. And ancient myth, I mean back uh, to the uh, to the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, and other cultures uh, back uh, two to three thousand years ago who had various myths in which there were fantastical creatures, uh, extraordinary adventures and journeys, and uh, beings that had uh, uh, various uh, uh, powers and abilities beyond the normal human being. Uh, mythology uh, throughout human's uh, history has been a very um, influential uh, dimension of our consciousness and thinking. And ancient mythology was informed by ancient theories of reality, often involving gods and goddesses and deities and spirits. Science fiction, I describe as our modern mythology in that it has all of the same qualities of ancient mythology except it is informed by our contemporary scientifically grounded theory of reality as opposed to the theories of reality in ancient times. Now that's a rough distinction and there will of course, not of course, but there will be often elements in modern science fiction which reflect ancient mythological ideas and concepts uh, as well. But as a rough distinction, the difference between ancient mythology and science fiction is that science fiction has a scientific view of reality. Ancient mythology had a deistic or a spiritual view of reality. But in all other respects, they are very similar. They inspire us. They inform us about the cosmos. Both are filled with fantastical beings, adventures, extraordinary journeys. They are consciously elevating. They motivate people. They inform people. And they push our um, 
a, a consciousness and awareness to the boundaries and beyond of human imagination. And of course, we can say that in many ways, fiction can be more effective than fact in the sense of seeding ideas, in changing minds, in changing paradigms. Uh, there's many of the reasons, I think, why, why myths have arisen um, in the first place. Oh, yes, Greg, uh, right on target. In fact, uh, one of my early arguments in the uh, uh, book is that humans have a disposition, psychological disposition, to resonate with the story, the narrative, uh, whether it's a drama, comedy, whatever it happens to be. And so uh, when uh, we tell each other stories, by telling each other stories, we have an impact on each other's minds. Uh, we are inspired. We're motivated. We're affected deeper than if, say, for example, I was to be attempting to explain an abstract theory to somebody else, which won't grab people uh, at a, a, a deep level the way a story will. Uh, so stories, in fact, or narratives, um, even if they are fiction, uh, definitely... Um, have a, a powerful effect on people's behavior, the way they look at reality, the meaning they see in life, and the way that they're influenced to lead their lives. And we all have stories. Well, yes, and stories can serve, uh, you know, mythical stories can serve many purposes along the lines of what you just described. Two things sprung into my mind when you were talking about this. If we think about sci-fi cinema, Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdome, which is a post-apocalyptic uh, movie towards the end of the film the generation of of young people and children that grew up after the collapse of the previous industrial civilization they remembered what for them was the distant past passed through something called the tell uh, which was basically running through this dramatized story but it was all relating back to what happened to the society that came before them and how they could remember that so to not repeat it uh, there's another piece of sci-fi cinema called uh, Reign of Fire. This is essentially a dragons are real type story. They have a similar thing that the young children go through. The adults who were there prior to the catastrophe have the children run through the story, literally repeat it out loud because it's what do you do when the dragons attack? And it's an, a dramatized story, but it helps them remember the, the essential points of it. Oh, yes, indeed. I uh, saw the first movie, the Mad Max one. I did not see the second one, but I definitely recall in uh, the um, Beyond Thunderdome, uh, Mad Max, uh, the uh, element of the children reciting the story of their past. And in fact, um, one of the key elements uh, in uh, whether it's myth or science fiction is going to be uh, uh, presenting positive visions to guide and inspire and direct or warnings and negative visions so as to keep us on our toes and to ensure that we do not uh, commit certain types of mistakes or go down certain pathways. So science fiction can both inspire you, it's like a story can motivate you to positive action, or science fiction can frighten and warn you about don't go that way or don't do that because that's going to lead to trouble. Yes, early on in the book you talk about the effects of science fiction, how they manifest in wider society. Essentially, this, or one of the essential points anyway, is it boils down to the cultivation of what you 
call cosmic consciousness. And this is just expansion of horizon of a sense of possibility. And clearly, uh, anybody who's listened to our previous interview about your previous book, Future Consciousness, will understand how essential you think this is, no matter what's going on in the, the daily grind of our lives. Yes, uh, uh, good, good point again, Greg. Um, I think that the human mind, one of its most important and valuable features is our capacity to imagine, think, see beyond the immediate here and now and the present and what's right in front of us, but to extend our minds and our consciousness to the big picture of things, whether it's in time or it's in space. Um, uh, uh, philosophers, say, for example, uh, Spinoza, the great 17th century philosopher, uh, have argued that the only way you can get a really good sense of who and what we are is to place us in the big picture within a cosmic setting. And science fiction, just like myth did before, ancient myth did before, it uh, allows us to uh, see ourselves within the immensity of the universe. And by doing so, we get a deeper and a better understanding of what and who we are. Um, Olive Stapleton, the um, uh, British philosopher and science fiction writer, uh, was uh, very powerful as one example in being able to stand way back in both space and time and give a very cosmic vision of humanity and of intelligence in the universe. And in doing so, it was very revealing about the nature of what we are and how we fit into the big scheme of things. Because it's how we fit into the big scheme of things that um, is uh, going to be most um, uh, revealing about the nature of what we are. I think Stapleton's key texts in this area are Star Maker, and is it Last and First Men or First and Last Men? I can never quite remember. It's yeah, I know. It, it, actually, he yeah, he twists you on that one. It's Last and First Men, but you would be thinking that he should put first, first, and last, second, but he does it in reverse. It's Last and First Men. You're yeah. Um, it took me a while to get that one straight in my head too. I would have to go back and check it again. <laughs> yes, yeah, those are his two major ones. He had other ones too. Uh, Odd John, a story about a Superman, and uh, Cirrus, which is actually a story about a super intelligent dog. Uh, both of those are very good novels too. But the major two ones were Last and First Men, and then Star Maker. Yeah, they, they project speculative uh, sort of future histories of the evolution of humans over across millions of years. Yeah, billions, uh, billions. Actually, uh, Last and First Men uh, goes out uh, two billion years into the future. And Star Maker goes out 30 billion years into the future. That's a big cosmic perspective in both cases. So you mentioned, um, again, the, the role of science fiction, the hopeful possibilities for the future, and also the, the fears and risks. And right. it's this balance of optimism and pessimism, really. The two forms of science fiction that you'll often hear talked about, uh, any, any overview of it, are utopian and dystopian, because and these two sort of strains reflect this uh, this duality 
Uh, yes. I'm, I'm referring to a good example of a, I mean, it's not, it certainly has poses a lot of serious questions, but 2001 A Space Odyssey might be seen as utopian or at least looking towards a, a very positive evolutionary future for humankind. A sci-fi film that lots of people know, an example would be Alien, which is positively dystopian. So that just sets the benchmark there for us. Let's talk about each of these two strains uh, in a little bit more detail. Utopian science fiction, or the idea of utopia itself, a couple of examples uh, from the literature. Uh, Men Like Gods by H.G. Wells would be one. The Dis- Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin is another. We see actually a manifestation of utopian thinking, which I think has been inspired somewhat by science fiction in, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but in something called the Zeitgeist movement, which is a movement for not just social change, but for global change in every aspect of how we live on this planet. Yes, I'm aware of that a bit. Yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's it coming out in actual, a, a movement of people wanting to actually change things. And these utopias quite often have a socialist or even a communist flavor to them. We'll go back to the beginning with your two examples of 2001 and Alien. One thing to note there is that, in a sense, those two novels have different answers to this question. Are there angels up there in heaven or are there devils? And, in fact, 2001, we have super intelligent aliens who manipulate us toward a positive and almost uh, non-physical future reality. In fact, Arthur C. Clarke also did that in his novel Childhood's End, which was a evolutionary step forward for humanity, too. In Alien, instead of meeting angels up there, what we meet are devils up there. And uh, so that's a, a, a pro- that's a literal projection of the, uh, the light and the darkness up into outer space. Um, uh, there's, of course, there had been lots of different... Uh, uh, utopias and dystopias written uh, through the ages. Uh, you know, you mentioned a few. Uh, uh, some of the more famous dystopias would include uh, Brave New World in 1984, uh, and another one which uh, was uh, very significant a little bit earlier, which was We by uh, the uh, Russian writer Ziamatin. Now, we and Brave New World, I just want to mention the two of them, are uh, fascinating in this regard. They get you thinking about what indeed would be a positive future versus what would be a negative or dystopian future. It might seem obvious on the surface what would be the good future versus what would be a bad future, but actually a good science fiction novel about a future society should get you thinking and expand your uh, um, uh, consciousness and thoughts on, you know, what is it that we really want? What is it that would be best here? By the time you come to the end of Brave New World and we, there's a certain ambiguity as to whether those are dystopias or they're utopias and that our limited mindset just can't grasp why these realities really would be better than today. And you also mentioned, uh, by the way, Le Guin's uh, The Dispossessed. Uh, you did mention that the subtitle of it is a ambiguous utopia. And she brings that issue up. You know, is this good or this isn't good? 
So utopias and dystopias will get us thinking about what is it that we really do want in the future? What is it that's best versus what may be something that isn't good, that is in some way negative? Uh, sometimes, in fact, you're correct. They are socialist visions, um, uh, or the, uh, but also dystopias have been presented, uh, as, um, uh, uh, different kinds of socialist visions too. Like one could say 1984 is a socialist vision, but it definitely is bleak and depressing. Um, so it depends on your political philosophy here. What's going to be the utopia? What's going to be the dystopia? Is it going to be democratic? Is it going to be rigid? Is it going to be flexible? Plato at the beginning, with the first utopia ever, uh, first significant utopia ever written, uh, the Republic, that was uh, uh, 400 BC, he presents what he thinks is an ideal society. But lots of people since have said Plato's Republic is a tyranny and it's a terrible society. So that's part of the issue here uh, of thinking it out, thinking out what's good, what's bad, what would be good for the future, what would be bad for the future. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, as Philip Jose Farmer, who was a, a famous uh, new wave science fiction writer, once said, one man's nightmare is another man's wet dream. When you read some of these utopian novels or watch some of these utopian sci-fi films, it can, as you said, it does depend on your perspective, but they can come across as static, stale, sterile, even suffocating or sinister in some yes. cases. And you did mention that, of course, the line blurs, and that depends where you're coming from, because, you know, as they said, it's a line from Blackadder, actually, you know, heaven is for people who like doing the things that happen in heaven. So I think that might not be for everybody. One point I was wondering, given that you're talking about evolution, is that idea of, of a static utopia in itself somehow anti-evolutionary? Yes, it is. And that's why if one is to envision a realistic utopia, one needs to envision it as dynamic and changing as opposed to static. If you have something which is totally controlled and static, I think it's going to be unrealistic and it's also going to be suffocating to the, the human beings who live in it. So like Thomas More's original utopia is actually very suffocating, as well as Plato's Republic. They don't change. And uh, when people envision utopias, they often envision them as an ideal state. Hence, if it's an ideal state, how could it be any better? So there's a sense in which it is timeless. And it doesn't change. Uh, but that seems unrealistic. And H.G. Wells, who wrote quite a few utopias, was aware of this issue, which is that when he thought about how one envisions a utopia, he realized that one needed to have as an essential element to it that it was transformative and changing. That's critical to a realistic utopia. And that becomes more and more important in our in utopian writing, in fact, uh, when we come more up to the present and uh, are more informed by, um, uh, strongly informed by evolutionary thinking and a dynamic vision of humanity and the universe and society too. Science fiction utopias tend to take on, not across the board, but often as not, uh, one of two dimensions which actually have a lot of resonances with developments or pressures in society at the moment one is the high-tech 
techno yeah. techno paradise sort of utopia with gleaming towers and glittering spires. That's kind of where the zeitgeist. That's certainly in the movement in their in their literature and their websites and what have you. That's what comes across. All your needs are met, anticipated and met. And then the other strain is the back to the planet, if I can call it that strain of utopia, more pastoral, where it's sort of like dispensing with technology or reducing our reliance on it, and is somehow perhaps going back to a what some would view as a better time. A good example of this in the literature is Ecotopia by Ernest Callenbach. I think that kicked off a lot of um, real world developments after its publication. Yes, indeed. There have been both um, technological utopias or uh, utopias with a technological emphasis. And there is the point of view that it is through advancing technology that the greatest achievements will come in the future. And this is a vision that goes back to the uh, uh, Age of Enlightenment, the scientific revolution. Humans, though, tend to be rather skeptical and cautious of that vision because we worry that our machines, our technologies, uh, they will get so advanced that it'll backfire on us and humans will be uh, uh, pushed aside or wiped clean. So people will say that uh, uh, don't rely too much on technology because in the end, uh, that technology may usurp humanity and we'll end up with a world of machines and forget humanity. Then it turns into a dystopia. Um, on the other hand, I think that the return to nature or the naturalist, which is really the romantic vision of the future, going back to the romanticists of the 19th century, who were also natural naturalist inclined, that that's rather regressive. Humans are distinctive uh, for a couple reasons, and one of them is that we are tool makers, tool creators. We are cyborgs. We are a synthesis of the machine and the biological. And any realistic vision of humanity has to integrate integrate into it the essential element of technology in our existence. Um, and so returning to nature has a kind of regressive and unrealistic feel to me. And you, you can criticize it on that. So uh, a future utopia cannot be a utopia that's uh, a reaction or a pullback from technology, but at the same time, there's this apprehension that we may become so uh, uh, dependent on it and created to such high levels of sophistication, it may usurp us. Having a, a advanced technology doesn't necessarily, though, mean that we are going to disrupt and destroy nature. Because we could have extremely intelligent, sophisticated, philosophically wise technologies that actually are beneficial to nature. So one does not preclude the other. But in fact, there has been this ongoing debate and this ongoing apprehension on both sides of the coin. You know, do we depend more on technology? Do we walk away from technology or reduce it? And I can see that debate going on into the future. Many utopias, sci-fi utopias, particularly the technologically advanced ones, uh, in the imagery, uh, sometimes, you know, in descriptions, if they're, if it's literature, they seem curiously devoid, if not of humans, then of all the detritus grime, uh, that comes with people. Blade Runner, for example, is certainly a dystopia, 
Um, well, but the, but the, I, I, the, the difference with that, that it's just some, it's grimy. What is, it admits that, uh, that, you know, that human beings come with, you know, there's a certain amount of like filth and imperfection. And even Star Wars, you know, the technology is grimy. There's dirt. You see the scene in the film where they get trapped in the waste reprocessing machine. And I say it's in stark contrast to some of the visions where everything is just squeaky clean and somehow that's in an idealized, a utopian future that we're going to cease having to go to the bathroom or whatever. <laughs> it's not impossible, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think I think some actually. Uh, if we talk for a minute just about certain visions of the future, like humans merging with AI or you know transhumanist visions, I think some of that yeah. comes from a sort of a revulsion of biology and bodily processes. Oh, okay. Um... Well, um, let me see. How am I going to react to that one? Um, well, you don't have to. You can. You can no, no, no. I'm. I got. I'm thinking about it. Okay. I mean, I'm just trying to get a handle or an angle on it. Uh, there have been people who have said and thought that uh, a technology, in fact, is in a sense the transcendence of nature or the transcendence of biology. I don't think of it that way. I think more like technology is actually an evolution of nature, an evolution of biology. There is, of course, aesthetics in this. And um, if one is to envision uh, a future humans or cyborgs or robots, uh, what uh, part, of, part of that vision is going to have to be what we consider to be aesthetic and beautiful, the gritty, dirty look of the future of the future uh, with a, a technological element in it to me seems to be a more recent turn in uh, uh, science fiction cinema. Say, if you went back to the 1950s uh, uh, or 60s, um, you would find visions of uh, high tech futures very clean. Now, beginning like with Blade Runner and Alien back in the 1970s and 80s, the future uh, future worlds that are technologically advanced, they get dirtier and grittier. It's almost like a style change that's going on. Do the transhumanists find biology repulsive? Uh, that one I'll have to think about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, that's an interesting point. Well, I just think it's a strain in thinking. That's all. It's yep. by no means sort of part and parcel of it. Yeah. Just, just certain things that I've read and certain people I've heard speak. It. You can. It seems to be a subtext. Shall we put it like that? Before we move on to just talk a little bit about in more detail about dystopias. As far as utopia goes, it does seem that we're kind of an unruly, rowdy species, and we can't bear too much order. Uh, even when it. This is ostensibly for our own good. We seem to push back against too much control, don't we? And too much yeah. prescription. You can see this in our own society, but especially in, in some future societies depicted in science fiction like Rollerball, where right. the ritual war games, basically, that they have in the game of Rollerball and that we have in, in football and, and, uh, all right. sorts, all sorts of other sports. And that this craving for 
individualism and individual freedom, even when it sometimes goes against our ultimate interests and may, may even shorten our lives and leads to conflict and chaos, that we still seem to go in that direction. So it's that there is a tension between order and chaos, isn't there? Oh, I agree entirely. In fact, let's uh, make the make the point a bit more pointed, in fact, uh, to make the point more pointed. But uh, there's a book I read a long time ago which influenced me a, a great deal. It was called uh, History of the Idea of Progress. And the author in it uh, stated that humans have had two totally different kinds of notions of progress. One of them is more freedom, more individuality, and the other is more order and um, uh, organization in society. And we push on both of those dimensions as we evolve. People have often reacted to governments that were too controlling, too constraining, had too much order, and they rebel against it in the name of freedom and individuality. On the other hand, if you have too much chaos and too much individuality and too much freedom, people start worrying there's not enough law and order in the society, and more law and order is, in fact, pushed on that society. So we have these two contradictory, almost contradictory desires within us. We want order, but we want freedom. We want conformity, but we want individuality. And it's like a Hegelian dialectic back and forth between the two. If you're going to imagine a utopia, a future utopia, a simple way you could imagine it, of course, is that you make it very orderly, which is very controlling and very suffocating. And of course, people aren't going to like that. So that's not really a realistic utopia. The realistic utopia has somehow got to acknowledge and bring into the picture a certain amount of chaos and individuality because you need a certain amount of chaos and individuality to breed, to get things to grow, to things to evolve, to develop. And if you put too much order into a system, make it too stable, too conforming, it becomes repulsive and people don't like it. And of course, they react against it because they see it as a tyranny to their individuality and their unique spirits. So there's a dialectic here, Greg, and it's been a dialectic throughout human history. And it's a dialectic in visions of utopias, too. As mentioned, we'll talk for a few moments about dystopias in a little bit more detail. As you mentioned earlier, the function of some of these stories in science fiction would be to help us avoid sort of sleepwalking into some of these situations that ultimately, you know, we wouldn't, there would not be idealized futures at all. You mentioned in your comments a few minutes ago, a couple of the classic utopias are, of course, Orwell's 1984, Huxley's Brave New World. Many of, you read articles about sci-fi and dystopia, many of them talk about uh, movies uh, from the 1970s. And for me, I, I think the 70s was a golden age for cinema in general. And certainly a lot of my favourite sci-fi films are from that period of time. As far as dystopias go, we have examples like uh, George Lucas, you know, Star Wars creator, um, his first film, THX 1138, is an uh, excellent dystopic sci-fi Romp, uh, Logan's Run is another classic, Soylent Green, another one from yes. that time. In recent years, actually, go, well, going back anyway to Gattaca and The Matrix in the late 90s, there's been many of them, some of them like very big uh, movies in the popular consciousness anyway, V for Vendetta, Children of Men, Snowpiercer, Elysium, Hunger Games. There's a lot of it around in contemporary cinema and literature for that matter. And uh one could say that um, the uh, proliferation of um, dystopian visions, the popularity of them, is uh, reflective of uh, a um, 
shift in human consciousness toward a fearful, anxious, apprehensive uh, sense of the future. That is, we see more images of fear up there than images of hope, uh, because the future is like a Rorschach test, or it's like a blank slate where you project on it what you feel deep inside. Um, so if we're seeing a lot of dystopias, uh, and of course, and not of course, but science fiction writers have brought this issue up, that a lot of science fiction over the last 20 years has uh, had a strong dystopian quality to it. There isn't enough in the way of utopian science fiction or positive science fiction. Um, I would, uh, just in passing, as two uh, 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 extremely well-done, intricate, thoughtful, stimulating, intelligent, utopian-like science fiction stories where there's struggle that goes on, but in the end, uh, what is good is victorious, uh, are um, uh, Ian McDonald's River of Gods and uh, uh, Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age. And those are complex and intricate, uh, more utopian visions. But in fact, there's been a lot of dystopian science fiction. Uh, yes, for sure. In the cinema, this, uh, in the cinema, but also in literature too. I just finished reading, uh, this last year, um, coming out of uh, China, the Three Body Problem, uh, trilogy, which, uh, uh, the first volume, the Three Body Problem won the Yugo. And, uh, that, uh, uh, uh begins as a, um, uh, dystopian, uh, uh, vision in ways. But by the time we finish the third volume of it, uh, Death's End, uh, we end up with a positive and optimistic vision of um, the uh, future, uh, but an intricate and intelligent one. And that uh, uh, is a, a great trilogy that came out of Chinese science fiction in the last uh, 10, 15 years. To note then that perhaps there's a lot of pessimism in the West because to some degree, there doesn't seem to be as much pessimism in the East about the future. Uh, so our dystopian um, um, uh, novels uh, may reflect uh, a greater pessimism over in Europe and the Americas and in uh, uh, China. We may actually, uh, I don't know Chinese science fiction that well, uh, definitely, uh, but uh, there may be more utopian visions over there because they're not so afraid of the future or depressed about it. Well, I suppose their society, generally speaking, is on a different trajectory or it's on a different point in terms of development. That right. For, you know, for a lot of Chinese people, they're st they've, in recent years, they've been seeing some of the benefits of, um, material development, economic, yes. economic development in ways right. that, right. in the ways that the U.S., for example, is starting to leave behind, actually. It's maybe starting to go backwards and according to certain metrics. So that could be the reason for that. Yeah. <clears> yeah. Yeah. Oh, we, de we definitely see a lot. I see a lot of pessimism both in the United States and actually, Every time I've gone over to Europe uh, in the last few years, it feels like people in Europe are pessimistic too, uh, that the West has gotten pessimistic. One of my little hobbies, uh, among others, is I like to follow the development and construction of skyscrapers around the world. And as emblematic of uh, a sense of uh, uh, economic hope and aspirations uh, toward a 
uh, a bedazzling future when you look at where the most uh, uh, incredible uh, skyscrapers are going up. The bulk of them are not going up in the West over the last 10, 20 years, but the bulk of them are going up in uh, certain areas of the Middle East, like in Dubai, but also especially in China. Uh, and so China's building these incredible structures uh, is an expression of uh, uh, immense hope and power for what lies uh, into the uh, uh, world of tomorrow. The kinds of buildings that you see in futuristic paintings that uh, science fiction artists created over the last 20, 30 years. The bulk of them are, are being put up in uh, China and uh, places around there, not so much in the United States or in Europe. Now, there, there are exceptions, but uh, there definitely is a, a significant difference uh, between what's getting constructed in the West and what's getting constructed in the East. Well, I mentioned when we were talking about utopias, about there being these two right. strains of high-tech and right. low-tech low visions of yeah. the future. Right. The right. same the same thing applies in dystopias. Uh, we mentioned Blade Runner. Uh, there's certainly a lot of high technology quite far ahead of what we have currently, although right. still still recognizable to us in, in, right. in Blade Runner. Uh, you know, Elysium is a good example of a high-tech utopia, uh, albeit some of the very highest tech reserved for the elite. And then you have the post-collapse type dystopia we mentioned earlier, Mad Max, where people have been, you know, forced back into the ways that, um, of centuries previous before the arrival of modern technology, uh, through no choice of their own. It has been said that, um, the only thing worse than a functioning dystopia is one that's falling apart. Um, oh, a dystopia can get worse. Um, a good example of that might be Terry Gilliam's Brazil, for example, where you've got a fairly high-tech dystopia that's just starting to come apart at the seams and may end up in some kind of post-collapse scenario. Yes, and uh, but Brazil, uh, I see Brazil as one of the great science fiction movies of all time. Um, it's one of my favorite science fiction movies. It's sort of surrealistic as well as science fiction. Uh, but... Um, uh, and so uh, as well with Blade Runner, um, as one of the great science fiction movies too. Um, uh, one thing is that it is a little bit of a challenge to create an engaging and moving and elevating positive vision versus to create an engaging and moving negative vision. So there's something about like Brazil and Blade Runner, which are negative visions that grab you, uh, even if they are very bleak in each in their own kind of ways. Um, the um, Elysium thing is, a, is actually a, 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 a dystopia in the same way in which Metropolis by Fritz Lang was a dystopia, where you have two different societies, one which reaps the benefits of technological and economic advancement, and then you have a second society that uh, supports the elitist society but lives in a very grungy, poor, and repressed existence. And that's a dystopia, because if you're going to have a society where half of the population or three-quarters of it is not living very well, so that one quarter can live okay, or one-tenth could live okay, that's dystopian. And that's what people would often say about the world that we live in today, that even if, indeed, a lot of people are fairly well off, there's so many people that are not well off, and actually work in order to support those who are well off. So that's got to be a dystopia because, of course, it's not an egalitarian or equal or just society. Uh, so um, if one is to envision um, 
uh, we're talking about dystopias. It's hard to talk about dystopias without talking about utopias at the same time. But if you're trying to envision um, a uh, extreme utop- dystopia, an extreme dystopia would be one where a few people have it all and mostly everybody has to work and suffer for those few people. And that is the classic dystopia. Uh, we all work for the ones at the top. Uh, and um, that would be depressing. Yes. Well, there are tremendous tensions between the hope and fear that we've been talking about um, at the moment in real, actual society, as opposed to any sci-fi visions. We have the techno-evangelists, as I call them, you know, Ray Kurzweil and the Elon Musks of this world, who are, in Musk's case, actually trying to physically do things at the frontiers of technology to push things forward. Kurtzfell is more of a, you know, he's a theorist, but he's just talking, I guess he's analyzing other people's work and speculating about what might be possible and what's desirable and where we can go. And he seems immune to any sort of signals to the contrary from outside. But we've got more than a fair share, fair share of doomsayers as well who are looking at environmental and economic problems and all the social strife that extend from that. And you know, feeling that why should we be spending money on, you know, space program, for example, when we have people dying in terrorist incidents and, and starving from, uh, from hunger? Yeah. Um, I, I would, I would argue on this point, at least, uh, at least one thing I would propose is that, um, it would be a mistake to think that by simply advancing technology, one is going to create a better world, a more utopian reality. Because at the core and at the center of our reality is our conscious minds. And what we need to do is we need to evolve and improve our minds, our consciousness, ourselves, our psychology at the, um, at the center of whatever technological developments we may uh, build around it. Because, of course, if you have something corrupt in the middle at the core, then however fantastic your technologies, those technologies can be used for terrible purposes as opposed to good ones. So to rely upon technology as the key to a better reality in the future is to miss what I would consider the third kind of utopia and the third kind of utopia, not a return to nature, not an emphasis on just tech, but an emphasis on the evolution of the human mind as really where the better reality of the future is going to lie. That would be the response back to somebody who wanted to emphasize machines, technology, and whatever uh, whatever particular contraptions we come up with there the uh, the response to say like the transhumanists who perhaps want to emphasize uh how technology can be used to we purposely evolve humans in the future well why don't we think about how humans can purposely evolve their minds uh, in ways that are ethical and ways that are wise and ways that are more mentally empowering they're not just simply uh, uh, using technology, but using our minds to do that and focusing on our minds as the um, um, as the center of our evolutionary advancement. Good minds, good future, 
lousy minds, lousy future, even if you have great machines. Yes, you've hit the nail on the head there, really, and, and touched upon a, a key point that I wanted to make and that I've spoken about many times about the evolution of the mind. I'll frame this in the context of another point I was going to put to you, which was about natural resources on this planet and technological development, which is often reliant on them, uh, whether it be oil or rare earth metals. I was going to ask you if you felt that there were hard resource limits somewhat coming over the horizon now that, that may limit technological progress in the future. Of course, we don't know what may be discovered in terms of technology or ways to use other resources in the future, but there are certain non-renewable resources that we're really quite reliant on, and a lot of people are kind of in denial about that. There's also a bit of some Luddite suspicions and, and attitudes to technology for obvious reasons, because it's, it's not seen as an, an unalloyed good. In fact, it's the source of many problems in some people's minds, uh, not perhaps along the lines of the Butlerian jihad in June, but the idea that a better future needn't be reliant on technology. But that doesn't mean that back to nature. As you say, there's this sort of third way. And in fact, I wrote in a recent article more or less about this, that the next frontier for growth and potential may be in fact in the realm of mental growth or of increased expansion and integration within the human psyche. You know, this is a vision of evolution more along the lines of uh, childhood's end, which you mentioned at the, the top of the hour, you know, by Arthur C. Clarke. Right. Yes. And in fact, one uh, shouldn't stereotype uh, science fiction as dealing uh, with uh, spaceships, uh, simply with spaceships and robots and time machines, uh, that there is a good deal of uh, science fiction over the decades that has dealt with uh, the uh, evolution of the human mind along different dimensions. Uh, Childhood's End was, of course, one, but we also mentioned Last and First Men, which if you read through that novel, you'll see that Stapleton had dozens of ideas regarding how humanity could evolve itself mentally, socially, ethically. And when he comes to Star Maker, we have dozens more of ideas regarding how intelligence in the universe could evolve itself along social, ethical, psychological dimensions, too. So in the history of science fiction, there's a lot of uh, uh, psychological or psychosocial uh, visions of evolution or psychobiological visions where you combine together evolutions in the, bi in the biology of things with evolutions on the mental level. Um, it would be a whole deep discussion, though, to get into regarding uh, the concept of resources uh, and whether we have finite resources because there's the issue of how the mind empowers uh, reality. And we may find ways to extract more or extract something different. Um, uh, but again, you could say that focusing on how um, material uh, wealth translated into technological conveniences and power uh, is lopsidedly being overemphasized as the key to the future, uh, I would agree with that, uh, as opposed to how do we, uh, and science fiction provides lots of examples of this, lots of different visions of how do we evolve our psyches, our minds, 
in conjunction with technology, but not using technology as a um, uh, a crutch, which technology can be used as too, or as a distraction. So I talk about like why cyborgs. We should be why cyborgs. We can't get rid of technology. Technology is going to keep growing, but we want to be wise in what we create and how we use it. And the key term there is wise. That's at the center. So we spoke at some length about mythology near the start of the hour, and you mentioned how we make sense of the world through stories. So many of them in the past were tied in with religion, but given the retreat and the disintegration of mainstream religion that we have in many parts of the world, particularly the West, we need some new myths. And this is something that you touch upon in the book. And many people are resistant to this idea because for them, myths are something that are just inherently untrue. That's not really the meaning of myth. And they think that we've moved beyond the need for that. But we haven't at all. We have not at all. They're vital as ever. And we, we have created new myths for ourselves really without realizing it. But in, in terms of moving forward, for a lot of people, it feels like we're rather stuck at the moment. We need some new myths. And there's a quote that I liked from Ernest Callenbach that I mentioned earlier, the author of Ecotopia. It doesn't matter what you think of his vision for um, the future, but uh, he said, "It's uh, this is back in the 70s, it's so hard to imagine anything fundamentally different from what we have now. But without these alternate visions, we get stuck in on dead center. And we'd better get ready. We need to know where we'd like to go. And that really resonated with me. And uh, one thing he says in there that's important, and this connects back to science fiction, is that science fiction stimulates the imagination. And science fiction gets you to break out of the accustomed, the normal, the commonplace. Because there's an immense range of possibilities uh, to uh, existence or human existence. And we need to have... Uh, uh, forms of education, stimulation, literature that uh, stimulate, that provoke, that expand our imagination, our creativity. And science fiction does that. Uh, people, of course, will say, uh, uh, commenting on a couple of the things you said in there, people, of course, will say that we don't need myths because myths aren't true, but that's not what the concept of myth means. As, uh, and so we do need myths in the sense that we need inspiring, fantastical, elevating, and also frightening narratives because people are moved by narratives and people's minds are expanded by making those narratives um, uh, fantastical and imaginative, and we need that. Uh, we're not going to get it through our scientific theories as such. We're going to get it through our stories. And yes, we need new stories that are credible, that are convincing, and that uh, move us uh, uh, forward. Uh, so we also have the problem, though, uh, that even if you comment that, uh, Greg, that um, uh, mainstream religion uh, is uh, uh, struggling to um, maintain itself in uh, the modern world, there's still a huge percentage, if not a majority of people in the world who uh, believe in the myths of uh, traditional religions and would find the the new stories, the new narratives of uh, science fiction metaphysically, ethically, humanistically offensive. 
But in fact, we need new stories. We don't need to just have the same stories of 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. We need new ones. Um, stories that speak to today and speak to tomorrow. Yeah, because our view of reality informs our sense of what's possible. Yes. I think there's a lot of blinkered and closed down thinking going on at the minute because people feel besieged from all sides. Many people do for, for various reasons. Well, that's part of our evolution. We have to have the capacity to open our minds to possibilities and not get so bothered over, uh, the, uh, the, the realm of possibilities. We, uh, one of our, one of our challenges and our problems is being closed-minded, entrenched. Okay, Tom, today we've been talking about your latest book, Science Fiction, The Evolutionary Mythology of the Future. Now, this is part one of, as you mentioned earlier, a projected four-part series. Uh, I understand that you've almost finished part two. Part one's available everywhere at the minute. So perhaps you could just tell us something about what we can expect in future and also uh, mention your website and anything else you'd like to put out there. Yes, okay, my website is the Center for Future Consciousness. Um, the volume that is presently out on science fiction, volume one, is from Prometheus, the ancient Greek uh, titan, which of course refers back to uh, uh, ancient mythology up to the Martians, which is the end of the 19th century. And so volume one deals with the history of science fiction and myth and their connection up to the beginning of H.G. Uh, uh, Wells at the end of the 19th century. Volume two will, uh, the subtitle, uh, which indeed is almost finished, um, is uh, The Time Machine to Star Maker. And that will cover H.G. Um, Wells and all of his writings starting in the 1890s, including The Time Machine, up to the end of the 1930s with Olaf Stapleton and Star Maker. Volume 3 uh, will begin with uh, the Golden Age of Science Fiction, the Golden Age of Science Fiction pulp magazines with uh, John Campbell and Astounding Stories in the 1940s and we'll go from the 1940s up to the 1970s um, with new wave science fiction. And I'm four will be Star Wars to the Singularity and Beyond, which will cover the late 1970s up to the present with science fiction. So those are the four volumes. And uh, I do a course on all four volumes already, but I've just finished writing out the second volume, just about done with it now. Um, and it should be uh, uh, into the publisher, I hope, within the next few months. Tom, thank you once again so much for joining us on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yes, Greg, and thank you for having me. I enjoy talking with you. <laughs>